Welcome to the Master of None podcast, adventures in a hands-on life. Build. Grow. Cook. Train. Explore. So, as I was listening to the last episode that I recorded, which was our question and answer on sailing topics, I realized that I had made a mistake. I made an error, said something that's incorrect. So instead of trying to go back and patch in saying the right thing, we're just going to do a little correction right now. So that episode actually has not even dropped yet by the time I'm recording this. So if you caught that error, congratulations. And what I'm talking about is when I referred to the difference between a solar day and sidereal day. Now let's back up just a little bit so I can give you some context to understand what I'm talking about. When it comes to celestial navigation, or observing the sun, moon, and stars to find your position on the surface of the Earth, we kind of start with the assumption that the Earth is stationary and in the center of the universe, and everything else in the universe is revolving around the Earth. Now, we know that in reality, that's not the way that it works, but for purposes of celestial navigation, that's exactly the assumption that we make because it makes all of the math manageable. So, in the next couple minutes, when I talk about the sun going around the Earth or the stars going around the Earth, I'm not crazy. I know that that's not how it works, but Like I said, for purposes of celestial navigation, that's how it works. So, the sun goes around the Earth on a 24-hour cycle. The stars, all of that whole background picture of stars, go around the Earth in a 23-hour and 56-minute, approximately, cycle. Now, what that means is that the stars are going around the Earth slightly faster than the sun is going around the Earth reason for that in reality is because the earth over the course of a year is making one lap around the sun, but basically not moving at all in relation to that background of stars. The earth is spinning. So from, from our perspective here on earth, it appears that in the course of a year, there are like 365 solar days. Now, because the stars are moving just a little bit faster there are 366 sol- or, I'm sorry, sidereal days. That's the term we use when we're talking about the stars going around the Earth is the sidereal day. Now, the reason why there's a difference of one in a year is because the Earth makes that one extra lap around the sun. And, of course, if you take that difference of four minutes between the sidereal day and the solar day, multiply that out by the 365 days in the year, guess what? You come up with approximately 24 hours. Now, the the difference between those we correct for with things like leap day, leap years, and the leap day on a leap year. Anyway, that's that's how we end up correcting for that because it's not it's not perfect. The how should I say this? The rotational speed of the Earth is not evenly divisible into the exact orbital speed of the earth around the sun, which makes sense because they're just kind of, they're two different numbers that are not inherently tied together by some 
mathematical or mechanical process. Anyway, what we were doing is we were talking about an observation of local apparent noon, which is observing day to day the highest point that the sun reaches in the sky before it starts setting again. Now, if we remain stationary on the surface of the earth, the time between two consecutive observations of local apparent noon is going to be precisely 24 hours. And that's because, well, and that that's true regardless of your position on the earth and regardless of the season, time of year, anything. It's always going to be 24 hours from local apparent noon to local apparent noon. And since this is a solar observation, an observation of the sun, it's based on that 24-hour solar day. If we were doing a similar observation of a star, it would be based on that 23-hour and 56-minute sidereal day. The mistake that I made was saying that we base our observation of the sun on that 23-hour and 56-minute sidereal day. That's incorrect. Now, I did get another question just asking me to put it in like some some frame of reference like how how precisely do i have to measure the amount of time between those observations of local apparent noon and how does that actually translate to how precisely i can plot my position on a chart so let me answer that real quick now an important concept to understand what's well, not a concept it's a fact an important fact to understand is when we talk about miles on the ocean we're talking nautical miles now a nautical mile is defined as one minute of arc a minute being a 60th of a degree so one minute of arc on the surface of the earth because the earth is round so 360 degrees to go all the way around the earth you can divide that 360 degrees into 60 minutes per degree. So one minute of arc on the surface of the earth at the equator, because yeah, the earth is slightly squished, is precisely one nautical mile. The other thing to remember is that we're dealing, when we're, when we're plotting our position based on that local apparent noon observation, we're actually doing two completely separate and independent calculations, one for our latitude, which is how far north or south we are of the equator, and one for our longitude, which is where we fall east to west on the globe. So for that latitude one, we're observing how high the sun gets in the sky at local apparent noon. Then based on the day of the year, that gives us our latitude. That observation, basically the the exact same degrees of accuracy with which you can measure the height of the sun at local apparent noon translates directly to the degrees of accuracy that you can measure your latitude. So, for example, if you can only confidently measure the sun within one degree, well, that's going to translate directly down to the surface of the earth to one degree of arc on the surface of the earth or approximately, well, exactly 60 miles, 60 nautical miles. So if you can be more precise about that measurement of how the, of how high the sun is above the horizon, let's say that we can get that measurement within one minute of arc of measuring the degrees above the horizon. Well, that translates exactly to your position on the earth. And then your, your position that you plot, you can be confident is within one minute of accuracy on the position of the earth or one nautical mile. So, so you can see how getting more accurate with your measurement 
translates to a more accurate position. Now, what about when it comes to our longitude? Because that one's time-based. Remember, we have that 24-hour day. And keep in mind, if we remained stationary on the surface of the Earth, or for that matter, if we traveled due north or due south, we're going to have exactly 24 hours pass from the observation of local apparent noon today to our observation of local apparent noon tomorrow. And as we all know, the sun rises in the east, sets in the west. So if we're traveling in a westerly direction, we're basically going in the same direction around the earth as the sun is going around the earth. That's going to make those days longer. If we're traveling in an easterly direction, we're going in the opposite direction around the earth as the sun is traveling. So that's going to make those days shorter. So what is, what is the actual time difference that we're trying to measure and how does that translate to how far we've traveled from day to day? Well, this is actually really pretty simple math because all we're going to do is we're going to take the 24 hours in a day, multiply that by 60 minutes, 60 minutes per hour. That comes out to 1,440 minutes per day. Now we can divide those minutes of the day and Stay with me here because we have to use two confusing terms. We're talking about minutes of time and minutes of angle. So I'll try to be clear about this. Hopefully it doesn't confuse you. Okay, so 1,440 minutes of time in the day. Divide that into the 360 degrees around the Earth, because the Earth is a circle, and that gives you an equivalent of per one minute of time we cover 0.25 degrees. Now that 0.25 degrees of arc, that translates to 15 minutes of arc because quarter of a degree, quarter of 60 is 15 minutes of arc. Now not of time. So, so one minute difference in your observation of when local apparent noon occurs translates to 15 minutes of longitude. Now keep in mind, the, because of the way that our latitude and longitude grid is laid out on our round earth, the longitudinal lines get closer together and all meet at the poles. So if we're covering 15 minutes of longitude, that only translates to 15 nautical miles if we're at the equator. The closer we get to the poles, the, the tighter that gets. But just to keep this simple for now, that 15 minute that one minute difference in our observation of when local apparent noon occurred translates to 15 minutes of angle. So to break that down even a little further, if I wanted to be within one mile, that requires within one mile accuracy on where I plot my position. That basically requires an observation of local apparent noon that, you're that is accurate within four seconds. So basically, this method of navigation is not accurate enough to comfortably navigate in shoal water between islands and reefs and all of that totally blind, but it is accurate enough that if you're out on the open sea, you can get, well, especially if you're doing something like a Atlantic crossing where there aren't a whole lot of islands and shoal water and stuff and you're out in the middle of the ocean, this is accurate enough to give you a general idea of where you are within, at least within a few miles, depending on your observation and navigation skills. 
But like I said, you're not going to be navigating in shoal water blind with a method like this. So hope that gives you some perspective on like how accurate this method is and error in observation, how that would translate to error in your actual position on the surface of the earth. Okay, enough about sailing by the stars, because today we're talking about dog training again. And specifically today, we're getting a little more advanced in our training, and we're going to be covering what we might consider training your dog to have good manners. But before we get into that, just a reminder that this dog training episode series on the Master of None podcast is brought to you in cooperation with Zach George, Zach George's Dog Training Revolution. And Zach has two books. I have both of them, and I highly recommend both of them, along with an extensive YouTube channel that has a lot of dog training videos on it. So Zach's first book, Zach George's Dog Training Revolution, is the name of the book. I highly recommend this one for anyone who is thinking about getting a puppy, thinking about adopting a dog, maybe has just gotten a puppy and you're realizing that this is you're in a little bit over your head and you need some help or maybe you've had a dog for a while and you you're just a little frustrated with the training and you think that your dog could be better but you're not sure what to do well highly recommend this book and this is the first one that I would recommend because this kind of lays out the overall picture the overall plan for the training process describes the principles that you're going to need to understand that are going to apply to training basically any dog, how to do anything. There's some general principles, but then it goes through kind of a, a timeline process for training the dog. And one thing that I really like about this one is throughout the book, you'll find that he has these little like play button icons. Now that tells you that there's a corresponding YouTube video that you can go look up and you can actually see Zach doing exactly what he's talking about in the book. Because sometimes, let's face it, sometimes actually seeing it is better than just reading it or just hearing it, like you usually get from me. Now, the second one is called Zach George's Guide to a Well-Behaved Dog. I recommend getting that first one first. And actually, if you're, let's say that you're thinking about getting a puppy or adopting a dog, whatever, get the book first, read through cover to cover once. And then kind of go back and start reviewing because you need to learn these lessons as the trainer. Like it's almost, it's almost harder to learn the lessons as a trainer than it is to teach the dog, the actual, the actual things that we're trying to teach the dog. So get it, read through it once cover to cover, and then go back through and start reviewing. And then as you're training your dog, go back through again and review those individual lessons. Now the second book, like I said, is called Zach George's Guide to a Well-Behaved Dog. This is the one that I tell people is almost just like a troubleshooting guide for your dog. And I like the way that this one's laid out, which is very different than the dog training revolution that's kind of the whole program. This one, you can go through and read an individual chapter. And each individual chapter deals with an individual, quote, bad dog behavior. Now, most of those bad dog behaviors are actually just natural dog behaviors that we desire to correct to something else, to our human standard. Because as humans, we have different standards of what's polite and appropriate than what dogs have. So just a few examples of bad behaviors. And I should say anybody who's had a dog, like most of us probably haven't had a dog that has all of these problems. 
but anybody who's had a dog at some point has experienced at least one of these problems. So just some examples are like excessive barking, chewing, jumping on people, play biting, leash pulling, begging, stealing. So, and many, many others. That's just a few. So he goes through behavior by behavior and breaks down, okay, what is this behavior? What are the most likely causes of this behavior? Like I said, usually just it being a natural dog behavior and we haven't trained the dog that we expect that we are expecting it to do something differently than what it would just naturally do. So that's, that's usually the cause, but there, there can be some other causes too. So he goes through the behavior, the likely causes, how to identify which cause you're actually dealing with, and then how to correct that behavior step-by-step process to correct that behavior in your dog. Now, whether you get one of these books or not, or both of them, I would still encourage you to go check out Zach's YouTube content because he has a lot, a, a lot more than just what he talks about in the books he has on YouTube as well. And one thing that I like about the way that he's done this is he's not demonstrating these training techniques on his own trained dogs. He's demonstrating them on untrained dogs as he's actually in the process of training that dog. In fact, sometimes he'll just go like to the shelter and borrow a completely untrained dog from the shelter to demonstrate the training technique. Because really what we're, what we're interested in is the training technique, not seeing how well behaved a fully trained dog can be. So let's go ahead. Hang on just a second. Let me adjust my pop filter on my mic. There we go. Okay. I think we're good. Let's go ahead and jump into some of the actual training that we're working on. Let's talk about some of the general concepts to keep in mind. Now, we already talked about correcting bad behavior as actually just adjusting a natural behavior to an, quote, unnatural behavior. So keep that in mind anytime we're talking about the dog having bad manners, because that that manners thing is kind of what we're focusing on today. A few other general concepts, though, to remind you of. One of those is don't wait until you need the dog to exhibit the behavior to train that behavior. So a great example of this would be you don't want your dog to jump on guests when the guests show up. Don't wait until your guests walk in the door and your dog is jumping on the guests to, to train not jumping on guests. That's, that's a lot for a dog to take in. And jumping is going to be one of the specific manners that we talk about in a little bit. So you'll kind of see why that would be so much for the dog to take in. Unless you've talked to your guests beforehand and you've done some training on not jumping beforehand and the guests are, quote, dog people and they're willing to assist with training and then also recognizing that 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 moment in time when the guests are arriving is a dog training session, not you welcoming guests into your home. Because as we're training our dogs to do things, we, we also need to realize, like, once I'm taking the dog and to whatever place to work on whatever behavior, anything else that I'm planning on doing is out the window. I'm no longer going to the park to whatever, feed the ducks. No, this is now a dog training session. Or like I said, when guests arrive, I'm no longer welcoming guests into my house. This is a dog training session. Uh, same thing goes for like going for a walk. Now, 
oftentimes we make the mistake, especially in the kind of traditional training of thinking, how do we train a dog to walk politely on a leash? We take them for a walk. No. Going for a walk is when we need the dog to exhibit the behavior. There's a lot of training that needs to go in when we're not also needing to accomplish the task of going for a walk. And that may actually start like in an easy environment. So when we start training the dog how to walk politely on a leash, that's not going to even start outdoors where we have all of these other distractions. Because even like, I don't know, a little patch of ground that smells a little differently or this is a fun texture of grass or, oh, there's a rock over here or who knows what. Many, many, many distractions outdoors And that's going to take away from the training environment of initially training the dog how to walk politely on that leash. So we're actually going to begin that training indoors to remove those distractions. And then we realize that once we go outdoors, we've completely changed the environment. And we're going to then be dealing with all of those distractions. Another general concept that we need to keep in mind is we need to figure out ways of getting the dog to exhibit a certain behavior without physically forcing the dog to do that. A couple reasons. One is it's unpleasant for you. Another is it's unpleasant for the dog anytime that you're having to physically force them to do something. And on top of that, for many of us with bigger, stronger dogs, you're actually just not going to be physically capable at some point of forcing the dog, of physically forcing the dog to do what you want it to do. So we have to figure out some tricks and techniques so that we don't, so that the dog does the, whatever the behavior is, so the dog does that on their own without us physically forcing them to do it. And then kind of the, the more nuanced aspect of that is we've then made that a more positive experience for the dog. And we're not, we're not adding ourselves physically dominating the dog as as one of the variables in the situation. Because then as soon as we remove that, what's going to make the dog exhibit the behavior when what we've trained before is when I tell you to do this and make you do it, then you have to do it. What the behavior that we actually want is when I tell you to do this, you do it. So it would be best if we can remove that physical force as a factor in the entire situation. The next thing to remember is that we're teaching our dogs commands with a certain behavior associated with a command. They don't understand our language. Now, yes, dogs are smart, and eventually over time, they'll pick up on a lot of stuff. Just they'll kind of naturally pick up on it. Like Ajax figured out what his rope is. It's his rope toy. And if I say rope, he'll go run and grab that specific toy, which is pretty fun. So yeah, dogs are really smart, but they do not speak our language. So Another example of this, so let's say that Aura is outside and she's sniffing around, whatever. Maybe she finds something that she wants to chew on or who knows what or something that she's just interested in that she wants to check out and we want her to come back inside. And so so we're trying to get her attention. Aura, 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 Aura. Okay, we haven't actually told her to do anything at that point. Or come here, come here, come here, come here come on, come on. When the actual command is aura, come. And then she immediately lifts her head up, looks at us and runs straight back to the house. So keep in mind that just because your dog knows the command come doesn't mean that come here or come on is going to mean the same thing to your dog. 
Next, I wanted to kind of just reiterate some of the fundamentals of positive reinforcement training. And positive reinforcement training is the method that we're using with our dogs. We're seeing great results from it. So just a few of those fundamentals. First of all, we're going to use some sort of positive marker word. Yes is usually what a lot of people use because it's easy, it's natural, and for some reasons dogs tend to easily associate the word yes with positivity. Now we also use a clicker and clicker training is there's nothing magical about it. Sometimes you see it kind of advertised as being this this revolutionary magical thing. Well, clicker training is actually just positive reinforcement training but using a handheld clicker as a replacement or even in ju- just in conjunction with that positive marker word. So there are a few advantages to the clicker. One being that it's very consistent, so the sound of the clicker doesn't change based on your mood, where the sound of our positive reinforcement word, positive marker word, could change a little bit with our mood, which might might affect the effectiveness of our training. Also, you can be very precise with the timing of when you give that click. So you can, you can say, yes, right then, that is the precise moment in time when you, my dog, did exactly what I was asking you to do. Another advantage to the clicker is just that in an extended training session, if if you find it tiresome to repeat the word yes 500 times or whatever, the clicker can just be easier. When you're, you're marking when the dog does what you want the dog to do, you give it a click and that provides that positive reinforcement. Now we, we did talk before, so if you want more information on like how to get the dog accustomed to that positive marker of the clicker because if you do it wrong you can just as easily make that click and give that that click a negative association for the dog you don't want to do that so go back listen to previous episodes on dog training and we talk about exactly how to initially create that positive association with the click Uh, next use treats generously. Now, a lot of people are afraid that if they give their dog too many treats, the dog's only going to listen to them when they use treats. My advice would be just, especially at first, just be super generous with the treats that gets your dog excited about the training process. And it's something that they look forward to and get excited about instead of something that's kind of drudgery for them. And the use of treats, especially when it comes to Lure training for basic obedience, which we talked about in the last doggy training episode, it just makes the whole process really easy. And and it's just an easy way to communicate with the dog because you have a treat, the dog knows that you have a treat, they're interested in that, and they know that there's something they can do to earn that. And then also their interest follows the treat, which is usually their nose and the rest of their body follows their nose. So you can use, you can easily use a treat to lure a dog into the position that you want them to be in, which like we talked about before, eliminates that physical force aspect of the training. So the dog's actually choosing to go from one position to another on their own without you even having to touch the dog. Uh, Next, next thing to remember is one thing at a time. And we as humans have a tendency to think, okay, here here's the standard that I'm going to set and anything that doesn't meet that standard, we're going to have to correct. Well, that does not work well with dog training. With dog training, decide what's the one thing that you want to teach right now. An example that I've used before is when you're trying to house train the dog, 
let's say that you have them on a leash and they start pulling toward the door, needing to go outside, well, that's that's good progress on the house training. At that point, don't correct the leash pulling because then you're you're doing two things at a time and you're probably going to end up failing at both. The dog's still going to pull on the leash. The dog's going to pee on the floor. You're both going to be upset and you've just had multiple failures instead of at least one good solid success. Uh, next, timing is critical and dogs have an extremely short window to associate the reinforcement that you're giving them, whether that's positive or negative feedback with their behavior. And it's basically like, what is their behavior right now? And what are, and what feedback are they getting from you? It's not even, we're talking, if there's any delay, we're talking about fractions of a second. So here, here's an example. And I, I've seen people do this. Let's say that you don't want your dog to steal your, your socks. And so you're, you're holding the socks in front of the dog, shaking it, saying, no, no. And the dog's sitting there looking at you. What's actually going on there, you're not communicating to the dog that the sock is a no-no that they're not allowed to play with. That's way too many concepts for a dog. What the dog's behavior actually is at that point when it's sitting there watching you shake the sock in its face it is actually refraining from playing with your socks. It's actually, the dog's actually doing what you want it to do at that point. So saying no and acting frustrated is completely counterproductive. The dog's actually doing what you want it to do. So you should reinforce, yes, like that's a good behavior. And sometimes we as humans, like we, we have a much longer time frame for associating our behavior with the consequences of that behavior, be it positive or negative with the dogs, narrow that window down so that it's what is the dog actually doing right now at this moment? And what feedback am I giving the dog right now at this moment? Not what they did five seconds ago. It's what they're doing right now. And this could be particularly challenging with training good doggy manners because usually what we think of as the good manners involves a bad behavior that's already happened and then we're trying to correct that. So we're already frustrated and it can be hard to make that transition as soon as the dog's behavior changes to providing them with that positive feedback. All right, what's next? Um, remember that dogs don't just automatically generalize concepts the same way that we do. What do I mean by that? Well, something like like house training we've talked about before, which is kind of one of our, our very basic puppy training things is house training. And we can't just explain to the dog that you're allowed to relieve yourself when we're outdoors and you're not allowed to relieve yourself when we're indoors. That has to start very small, usually in their kennel where they sleep. And they're, they get that pretty quickly that they shouldn't relieve themselves in there. And then we expand that from there to like one room to one floor of the house and then having them go outside consistently. And eventually they get that. And then we're all proud of our dogs. So we take them over to the neighbor's house. And the first thing they do is they walk in and they pee on the floor. Well, that's not the dog misbehaving or trying to embarrass you. That's just because the dog has not generalized the concept of... And maybe they've totally gotten like, there's there's my house where we don't go, and then there's the rest of the world where it's okay to relieve myself. So the combination of the neighbor's house being part of the rest of the world and being a new environment, maybe they're a little nervous or whatever, 
It's very natural for them to pee on the floor. So we overcome that over time by just introducing more and more and more variables until the dog does eventually generalize the concept of I can relieve myself outdoors and not indoors, or even understanding the con- the generalized concept of what is outdoors and indoors. That's not as easy for a dog to grasp as it is for a human to grasp. Another one might be like, let's, let's say it's one of our basic obedience commands like sit. So we train the dog to sit and they're doing great. And then we change one small variable like wearing a hat or putting on sunglasses or turning our back to the dog. Well, that's a, that's a variable that can completely throw the dog off. They're like, okay, I had, I had sit down, but now you're wearing a hat. So I don't get it. Now, that doesn't mean that our dogs are stupid. It just means that the way that their minds work, they don't generalize those concepts. And every time we change a variable, it completely changes the entire situation for the dog. Not to mention going into a new, more distracting environment like being outdoors. And along those same lines, just remember that distractions change everything and use that to your advantage. Don't make it fr- don't make it a frustration for yourself. Actually use that to your advantage by anticipating when those distractions are going to come up and using that as that variable for the dog where you're really in tune with what's going on. You can see that distraction coming, get your dog's eyes on you, and then see if you can get them to push their boundaries a little bit by still doing what you're asking them to do despite that distraction being there. Uh, Next is keep in mind consequences will generally be very subtle and very brief. And I think in the last episode, I used the word consequences or like negative feedback or something like that and got some questions about that. Like, how is this positive reinforcement training if it still involves consequences? So let me explain real quick what I generally mean by consequences for the dog and the consequences, like I said, usually being very subtle and very brief. Well, let's say that we're training the dog on something like weight before they come out of their kennel. So the natural reaction of a dog, they're all excited to see you. They're excited to get out of their kennel if they've been kenneled up for an hour or whatever, or or longer, maybe with an older dog. So they're all excited. Their natural reaction is going to be to exhibit that excitement, to probably jump up against the door of the kennel that you're trying to open. And that's not the behavior we want with our dog. We want it's much more pleasant if they just naturally back off and sit and wait for us to open the door, wait for us to tell them to come out. But this is one of those things where we're changing their natural behavior to something unnatural. That's what we want them to do. So that has to be trained. So an example of a consequence here would be if the dog is not waiting They're in their kennel and keep in mind, the dog is in their kennel. So I cannot physically even get to the dog to provide any like consequence, like negative consequence. The consequence here is just that the door of the kennel doesn't open. And let's say that I open it a little bit and they start to lunge forward. I'm just going to gently close it again. And, and that's the consequence is that the door closed. The result that the dog wants is for that door to be open and them to be out playing with you. So delaying that based on their behavior, that's the extent of the consequence when we're training that weight command. And we have to kind of progress slowly with this. We can't, we're not going to tell the dog to wait. Like when we first trained this with a little puppy, we're not going to tell them to wait and then have them sit there for 
I don't know, a minute or, or even five seconds. When we're first training this, we're going to walk up to the kennel and unlatch it. Just gently hold it closed with your hand. The puppy's probably going crazy because they're so excited to see you. And you're saying, wait, wait, in a nice calm voice. And they jump against the door. And eventually they're going to try to figure out, okay, what do I need to do to get that door open? And as soon as you see that little bit of restraint, maybe they just back off a little bit and just pause for a second. You're going to say yes and open that door and and just let them out. And you're going to slowly progress from that point to the point where you can actually just walk up to the kennel. The dog's going to back off. You can unlatch the kennel, swing the door open, and eventually they're going to get in the routine where you don't even have to say the word wait. And they're just going to sit back and wait until you say, okay. And then they'll come out nice and calm without all of the craziness. But I guess the question was about consequences and negative feedback. That's the, when I'm talking about consequences, the extent of the consequence is usually just the dog not getting what they want. And we'll talk about specifically how to apply that in some of these dog training manners that we're getting ready to talk about on this episode. One final thing before we jump into some of the specific manners that we're going to train is, especially if you have a higher energy dog and they're having they're having trouble focusing on your training session, exercise them first, whether that's a walk or some tug or fetch or whatever, get them some exercise, let them burn that exercise off, make sure they get a chance to relieve themselves, make sure that they're they're not thirsty, they're not hungry, and, and all of that, like that's just not a good time to train if they can't focus. So like I said, especially with a high energy dog, make sure you get them some exercise first, plan that in to your training, training schedule, whatever, you know, that I'm going to do some training now. So I'm just going to block off that time before our training block to get some exercise. Now, one thing that I will say is if you happen to have a lower energy dog, an exceptionally low energy dog, don't necessarily exercise them too much before your training session, or they're just going to like lay there and fall asleep because they'll be like, I need some rest. So So as a lower energy dog, I can't focus on our training because I'm sleepy, can't stay awake. And as you get to know your dog, you'll, you'll just kind of figure out what's the appropriate level of exercise before training that really allows us to focus on the training and, and have that productive training session where the dog's not all, all jumpy and they can't focus because they need to go burn off some of that physical energy. And maybe that's the way to think of it is before a dog can burn off that mental energy of a training session, it's got to burn off some of that physical energy first. Anyway, get to know your dog and you'll figure out kind of that appropriate level of exercise that you need that you need to provide before that training session. Okay, let's go ahead and talk about some of the specific good manners that we want to train. And I just kind of brainstormed a list real quick. The first thing that I have on the list is jumping when greeting. Now, like we talked about, why do dogs do this? Because the first thing to to figure out, if we're going to figure out how to correct the behavior, we need to figure out why the dog is doing this. And just like with most of the behaviors that we need to train away, this is a natural dog behavior, and we're asking the dog to do something that's not its natural behavior. So the natural thing for a dog to do, like if a dog's greeting another dog, is to have some 
some face-to-face interaction. Now, as humans, our faces are a lot taller than where our dogs are because we stand on two feet, our dogs stand on four feet. Looking at it from the dog's perspective, they might think, well, my human's natural behavior, albeit weird, my human's natural thing is to be way up there. So I'm going to correct that by jumping up in their face so we can get our faces together. Well, that's not what we want to happen. So we need to train the dog to not have that natural reaction of wanting to be face-to-face. And overall, the best way to train this is going to be to train the dog to have a different default. We're just adjusting what the dog's default behavior is. Now, deep down, what the dog really wants here is some attention because it's exciting. They're meeting either you, which sometimes when you come home from work, it might seem like they're meeting you for the first time every single time because they're just so excited. They thought you were never coming back. And understand that's because your dog loves you and wants to be around you. They're not trying to frustrate you by jumping up in your face. So what we need to do is we need to train, like I said, train a different default. The way that we're going to do that is we're going to take away what the dog wants when they're exhibiting that behavior that we don't want. And when they exhibit a behavior that we do want, we're going to give them the thing that they're after. And they're going to figure out pretty quickly, oh, when I do this, I get what I want. When I do this other thing, I don't get what I want. And lucky for us, dogs are so intelligent that they figure this out remarkably quickly. It's not like when I'm trying to tr- when I'm trying to train my goldfish, they just don't get it. The dogs are so smart. They're going to get this really, really quick. So what the thing that they want in this situation is your attention and your acknowledgement that they're there greeting you and kind of a return greeting. And like I said, don't be afraid to use treats generously to reinforce even more when they're doing the thing that you want them to do. And also use those positive reinforcement marker words and or clicker. So the yes, the treat, the attention, that's what, that's what the dog wants. So when the dog exhibits the behavior that we're looking for, then we give the dog what they want. So let's say that it's that jumping behavior. They, you come in the door and they jump in your face. Well, and don't even introduce the door as a variable yet, because we're going to have other variables too, like the number of people around whether or not those people came through the front door, whether those people are strangers or just you and your family. So lots of variables here and remember one variable at a time. So let's say that we're starting by removing as many of those variables as possible when we're in our normal training environment. So let's say that's your living room or kitchen or wherever. Most of us kind of have a default training area and then we expand from there because like I said, even leaving, if you normally train in the living room and then you go into the kitchen, the dog's like, yeah, I don't get it anymore. You changed everything. Don't know what you're talking about. It's because we changed one of those variables. So most of us are going to have one quote normal default training location and then changing rooms is one of those variables that we can change intentionally, but make sure you're doing it intentionally. So remove as many variables as we can. It's just me just the dog. And as all of you know, we're training two dogs at the same time, which has its own unique set of challenges. Thinking about maybe we'll do an episode on training two dogs because it has a lot of challenges. I'm convinced it's actually more than twice as much work, but the advantage is I get to 
move them through the process without starting all the way over with a new puppy. So anyway, one dog at a time, just me, normal training environment, and we'll see what the dog does. If the dog jumps on me, we've got some work to do. And it can be helpful at this point, very helpful, assuming we've also given the dog the exercise so it doesn't, so it's not just expending that extra energy. So it's exercised, we're engaging in this training. It can also be helpful if the, if the dog already knows some of those basic commands like sit and down. So when the dog jumps on me, I can give it that, whatever that negative marker word is that I might use, like uh uh-uh, and turn away and take away that attention that the dog is seeking. Well, the dog might figure out on their own, oh, I need to go into a sit. Or they might not. Maybe I have to tell them to go into a sit and then reward that with that positive positive marker, that yes, treat, attention, all of that. And dog jumps again, just turn your attention away from the dog. And that's that's probably the most critical thing here is when the dog is doing something to seek attention that you don't like, take your attention away. If the dog's doing something that you don't like and you give them more attention and that's what they're seeking, you're actually providing positive reinforcement for that bad behavior. And also when I say seeking attention here, I'm not talking about seeking attention in the same way that like, if we're talking about bad behavior in human teenagers might be attention seeking, that's not really what the dogs are doing. Now, once you have the dog to the point where he or she is not just automatically jumping on you in your normal training environment without any added distractions, that's when you're going to start adding those variables and adding those distractions. So you're going to change up where you are. You're going to change up who is there. So multiple people that the dog already knows, eventually add in strangers too, and especially especially strangers who are willing to take part in the dog training, realizing that in this scenario, this is a training session and, and that's the focus. Because like I said before, if if your focus needs to be greeting someone and welcoming them into your home, you need to choose, is it that or is this a dog training session and and cooperate with your guests on that also so that they're aware. Don't try to do both at the same time because you're honestly, you're going to fail at both. You won't have a good greeting of your guests coming in and you're not going to have an effective training session. So decide on one or the other and that's your focus. What other variables? Oh, if you have two dogs, then it would be having both dogs there simultaneously because the other dog is a complete distraction and alone they might be doing just fine, but you add both dogs together and you've completely changed the situation and you're going to have to train in that situation until you get to the point where the dogs are generalizing this concept of greeting politely. And and also when you when you reinforce that that restraint of the dog, eventually that's going to kind of become their default way to greet a new person. Is to come up to the person, approach the person, sit, maybe even lie down instead of jumping up on the person, jumping in their face, all of that. So, so that's kind of how we train that. And like I said, just expand to more and more of those, those different variables, indoors, outdoors, someone coming through the door, an unfamiliar environment, like a park or something like that inside someone else's house. Just introduce all of those variables as the dog progresses and gets better and better at this. 
All right, the next one on my little brainstorm list is, list is leash walking, and the bad behavior would be pulling on the leash. The good manners that we want to t- that we want to teach is walking on a loose leash without pulling. Now, like we talked about before, we first need to realize why the dog is pulling. Why are they exhibiting that bad behavior? And again, no surprise, usually this is because of a natural dog behavior. Two natural dog behaviors in this case. First of all, they're just excited to be going wherever it is that we're going. So if I, as a dog, am really excited about wherever it is that we're going, the natural thing is to get there quicker. So that results in me pulling on the leash. This isn't the dog trying to dominate you. This is just the dog being excited about going wherever it is that you're going. The second reason is that dogs just naturally walk much, much faster than humans. Kind of a natural walking speed for a dog for a dog is about a jogging speed for a human. So again, totally natural behavior of, okay, we're walking in that direction. Well, I'm walking at human speed. The dog's walking at doggy speed. And the mathematical result is the dog pulling on the leash. Again, the dog's not trying to dominate you. The dog's just doing what the dog would naturally do, which is walking at normal dog walking speed. So in order to not pull on the leash, the dog has to walk much slower, which is actually a very unnatural thing to ask a dog to do to slow down their walking speed to match our speed. So how do I, how do we actually train this? Well, the first thing, like we talked about before is don't wait for you to be going on a walk where you have some destination in mind to start training this. In fact, start training it indoors. You're going to put the dog on a leash and that's kind of where we're going to begin. After the dog has this down indoors, then we can go outdoors with no destination in mind, even if it's just in your yard or on your driveway or whatever. And then eventually you can progress to the point of actually going for a walk with maybe a few minor corrections during the walk, but you're actually getting there. And then eventually after that, you can just reliably walk your dog without having them pull on the leash the whole way. So a few pointers on how to actually train this. And like we talked about before, the important thing is to realize why this is happening because then we can address those issues. So one of the main things is the dog just being excited about getting to wherever it is that, that we're going. So that's what the dog wants. So as a quote consequence, that's what we're going to take away when the dog is not exhibiting the behavior that we want. When the dog is exhibiting the behavior that we want, meaning walking on a loose leash, that's when we provide a little of that reward. That reward can be that positive marker word, that yes, in addition to actually giving the dog what it wants with getting to wherever it is that we're going. So so how do we physically remove that? Well, we have the dog on a leash. Let's say that the dog starts pulling. Don't try to walk more slowly than the dog in the same direction that the dog is doing, especially with a big, strong dog. What you want to do in order to, and this is one of the few instances where you could say, yeah, we are physically having to stop the dog at this point. Sure, whatever. We're having to, I don't know, actually, I don't want to use the word dominate because we're not really dominating the dog. We're having to physically win against the dog because the dog's pulling and we're not pull or we're pulling back the other way. So 
In order to make this as easy as possible, though, don't try to walk in that direction and just walk at an appropriate speed for a couple reasons. First of all, that's very difficult to do. That takes a whole lot of strength on on your part. And like we talked about, if you're training big, strong dogs, a lot of people are just not going to be strong enough. The other thing that you're doing there unintentionally is even though you're providing that resistance, you're still rewarding the dog's behavior by allowing them to move in that direction toward their goal, toward that thing that they want. So by doing that, you are actually reinforcing the bad behavior. Also at this point, using any sort of specialized like choker chain or prong collar or anything like that is adding a variable where in the dog's mind, even if it works, what you've just done is you've added a variable to the equation. In the dog's mind, you've created this equation of, okay, I have to comply when I'm on a leash with this particular collar. Now you remove that variable. Why would you expect the dog to comply? So training with like a prong collar that's providing that discomfort for the dog, like I said, even if it works, if you do that, you've actually created a situation where you're training the dog not to comply when they're not wearing the prong collar. So I'm, I should mention, I'm not going to be critical of anybody for using a different training technique, but if you are going to use a different training technique, like a specialized collar or an e-collar or anything like that, just be aware that you are adding that variable and the effect that that might have, where the result that I want is that the dog walks politely on a leash just with its regular collar. So in my mind, like why add the extra variable to the training equation and then remove that variable and expect the same result when we we could just train without adding that variable in the first place. So anyway, instead of allowing the dog to slowly progress in that direction, what I want you to do is stop entirely. And if you have a bigger, stronger dog that's maybe even a little more determined, stop entirely, go ahead and take that leash that's in your hand and kind of lock it behind your hip and lower your center of gravity if that's what it takes to actually stop the dog. Now, most dogs compared to a human, you can just kind of stand there and the dog's not going to be able to physically pull you. But if you're training a dog that is big and strong enough that it can, again, you have the leash in one hand, take that leash that leash hand, kind of make a fist with that leash hand, put it behind your back or behind your hip, and then lower your center of gravity. That's going to make it extremely difficult for even a big, strong dog to pull you. That'll get their attention that no, we're actually not going in that direction. So what you've done there is you've provided the con- quote consequence just by taking away what, what it is that the dog wants, which is getting over there, wherever over there happens to be. The other thing to do that's It may seem kind of tricky to your dog, but the other thing to do is to just make a change of direction of either 90 degrees or 180 degrees, because that puts the dog in a different position in relation to you and the direction that you're traveling, where they like like it or not, they're no longer pulling because they have to catch up, move past you and then start pulling again. So by simply changing direction, you've put the dog in a position where they're not pulling and provides you with the opportunity to reaffirm that moment in time when they're walking on a loose leash. 
Now, you should also be able to anticipate when your dog is going to start pulling. Just based on the length of the leash, your body position, the dog's body position, you can anticipate that. And I would encourage you to stop walking before they start pulling. So before they hit the end of the leash, go ahead and stop. Don't wait until they're already pulling to try to slow down and stop. And again, our dogs being as smart as they are, they're going to figure out pretty quickly that, oh, when I don't pull on the leash, when I intentionally slow myself down, walk next to my human without pulling, that's when we get to go explore, go wherever it is that we're going. When I do pull, that gets taken away from me and they adjust their behavior pretty quickly. Now, the other time that dogs pull on the leash is when they get distracted by some some distraction. Maybe it's a squirrel, a car, whatever. And that's kind of a different thing than, than the consistent leash walking. Maybe the way that I should say it is it's two different skills that you need to train. One of those skills is how to ignore a distraction. One of those skills is how to walk on a loose, loose leash because those are two very different things. Slowing down their walking speed is one skill. Looking at you instead of going after some distraction is a completely different skill. Um, What's next? Let's talk about stay, wait, and bolting. So bolting, I mean like you open the front door and the dog just boom out the front door because guess what? Outside is exciting and fun and there's all sorts of stuff to explore, right? So why do they bolt? Because it's interesting out there and they want to engage with everything out there. That, that would be the natural thing to do. The, the unnatural behavior that we want to train is the human virtue of patience. So we're going to train that with a wait command. Now, we talked about this a little bit before. We initially start training the wait command just with letting them out of their kennel. And then we have to generalize that wait command to a whole lot of other things. The next place that I started teaching that was going out the front door. Now, Disclaimer here again, one thing at a time. So if you're in the midst of house training, don't try to train wait at the front door if they're doing a good job of going outside to relieve themselves. So pick one or the other to train in each individual circumstance. Now maybe maybe they go outside, they relieve themselves, you bring them back in. So now you know that they just relieved themselves. So we're not house training anymore. Now's the time to train wait at the door. So we bring them back to the front door. And maybe you just start by putting your hand on the doorknob and maybe as soon as your hand hits the doorknob, they start to lunge forward. Okay. At this point, you're not having to physically restrain the dog or physically dominate the dog because the door is closed. They can't go through the door as long as it's closed. They can only, they can only exhibit that bad behavior when we fail to control the environment by providing them with an open door to bolt through. So don't provide that environment. Don't set them up for failure. And again, we want to train this before we need them to exhibit the behavior. So don't don't limit your training of waiting at the door to every time that you need to open the door to go outside and then the dog runs and then you try to catch the dog and tell it no and all of this. It's not the way to do it. Wait until you are engaged in a training session and you have nothing else to do but train the dog to wait and not bolt through the door. And like I said, maybe you just start by putting your hand on the doorknob. Read your bot, your dog's body language. If they start to lunge at the door as soon as your hand hits the doorknob, you can provide that consequence by, guess what? 
not opening the door. Pretty easy. And tell the dog, wait. Now the dog might be all excited. They might be spinning in circles. Don't provide the dog even a taste of what they want until you see some level of compliance. Now, the dog's going to try to figure out, this is exciting. I know you're going outside because you have your hand on the doorknob. I want to go with you. How do I get what I want? Well, we're going to provide the dog what they want going outside when they do what we want, waiting at the door, not bolting out. So like I said, hand on the doorknob, tell the dog to wait. And as soon as you see that little bit of restraint, give them that positive reinforcement that yes, probably some treats. Treats would be really good at this point because that treat is is a little more incentive to stay inside because especially if they know that you have more of them. Now, the next step is going to be to actually open the door, but don't just fling the door wide open. You're just going to open the door a crack. Not enough for the dog to actually go through. Not even enough for the dog to stick their nose all the way through and get that, that rewarding sniff of outdoor air. Not even that much. So just a crack. Wait for the dog's little bit of compliance. Reward that. Close the door again. Then do that again until the dog's catching on and almost to the point where the dog seems to be getting bored with it. And maybe they just back off and sit while you open the door and close the door or crack several times. Then we're going to open it a few more inches enough where they would be able to maybe get their nose out to get that, fr- that breath of fresh outside air. That's so exciting. But if they do that, we have to take that away. So you're really going to have to read your, do- your dog's body language and intervene before they have the opportunity to fail and like bolt through the door or even like stick their head through the door. So stay ahead of your dog and pay attention on this one. Now we're going to progress through this eventually to the point where we walk up to the door. The the dog knows, okay, I know the routine. I'm going to have to wait. So the dog's probably just going to back off a little bit and sit and wait while you swing the door all the way open. Now, when you get compliance there, reward that heavily let the dog out almost immediately. Yes. Okay. And I use okay as my marker word to release the dog from a wait. So if they're in a wait at the door or in their kennel or for food or for water or for any number of things now, because I've added these variables so that the dogs generalize the concept, I use okay to tell them that they don't have to continue waiting. So the next thing to do might be when they're doing really well with that, add some distractions. Now that could be you walking outside, telling the dog to continue to wait. And you take a step outside and right back in. And then you take two steps outside and right back in. Then you take two steps outside and spin in a circle and back in. And then you, you can see how this goes of just slowly adding to it to make it a little more difficult for the dog. But when you, when you only make it a little more difficult, they progress very quickly in this training. Maybe you throw one of their toys out the door. You tell them to wait and you toss a toy out through the door. And if they don't chase it, if they continue to wait, reward them heavily, give them, give them a treat, give them an, you know, let them, let them out there. Cause that's, that's really the, the biggest reward that they're looking for is getting to go outside kind of the final stage of this is having all sorts of distractions outside where your dog gets to the point where, first of all, it it does a default wait without you actually giving the command. The door's standing wide open and maybe there are cars driving by. And be careful with this. Like, don't, don't expose your dog to cars driving by without the ability to 
restrain your dog, like have them on some sort of leash. Don't let your dog get hurt. But like where I live, we don't have cars outside, but there are antelope and horses and foxes and all sorts of stuff that the dogs can possibly see through the front door. That's exciting and interesting. And yet if I tell them to wait, they need to wait at the front door. Now, we already went pretty in-depth on the leave it command in the last dog training episode on basic obedience. So leave it though, I think, play. So if you want to learn how to train that one, go back and listen to that episode. But I think leave it, having a good consistent leave it really lends itself toward having a dog that people perceive as having good manners. To be able to have something that they that the dog's interested in, just get a verbal leave it command and have have the dog look to you for guidance instead of being totally distracted by whatever that thing is. It just has a lot of value. So if you want to learn the leave it command, go back and listen to that basic obedience episode. Uh, Next, solid recall, like coming when called. First, let me run you through a little bit of a scenario that's how we don't want to train this. And I think if you're catching on to this positive reinforcement method, it's totally going to make sense why you wouldn't want to train it this way. Let's say that you have your dog out off leash, the park, or even in your yard or whatever. You tell the dog to come, the dog doesn't come. And so you you play all these games running around with the dog for a while, trying to get the dog to come to you, whatever. Let's say that the dog finally does comply and actually comes to you. A lot of people are going to be super frustrated with the dog at this point. They're going to the dog's going to pick up on that, that, that frustration. They're going to clip the leash onto the dog and yank the dog along and say, you come when you're called. And they drag the dog off to the house or the car or whatever. And they're all frustrated. The dog's getting drug along. Well, what you've just done is you've taught the dog not to come when called because there was a negative consequence when they complied. Now, just like with all of our other skills that we're training, this needs to start in a more controlled environment with fewer variables. So start this in your normal training area. So so that indoors room, whatever that is, let's call it your living room. That's That's your default training area with no extra distractions. So there aren't other people around. There aren't other dogs around. Just you, the dog, normal training area, zero distractions, zero variables. And the one variable that you add is the command. And that's kind of how we start out training all of these skills. Now, exactly how you go about training this one can vary a little bit dog to dog, which has been interesting, interesting training Ajax and Aura because they're very similar, but they also have very, very different personalities. And one thing that we've noticed is that In general, I would say it's easier to train Ajax to do something, and it's easier to train Aura not to do something. So, for example, training Aura to stay. Well, stay involves doing nothing. So she she's right on that. Like that's easy. Like you tell her to stay, she's like, Yeah, got it. Um, this is easy because you just told me to do nothing. Really good at that. But if you follow up that stay command with a come, she might be like, eh, I'm still kind of good staying here doing nothing. As opposed to Ajax, who is always like super enthusiastic about what's the next thing. So telling Ajax to stay 
you can see his little mind turning and like he's all excited because he wants to know what's next and he likes to be right next to you. So you tell him to stay. That's a big struggle for him. And so he didn't get stay quite as quickly as Aura did. But that recall, that come command, like as soon as you tell him come, boom, got it. Yes. What's next? So like I said, this one's going to vary a little bit how you train it dog to dog because if you have a dog like Aura, training that recall is going to be a little more difficult, even though training her to stay was much easier. If you have a dog like Ajax, training that recall, like you almost don't need to train it because like the recall is his default mode. Like coming to you is his default mode. The hard thing to train him to do is to stay put and not come to you. So since, since we're talking about training that recall, I'll give you the example of like how I trained it with Aura. So Back to our normal default training environment with as many distractions removed as possible. The only variable is after having her stay, because we're solid on that one. She's good. I can tell her to stay and she'll stay. Then I say, come. And, you know, the first time you give that command, it might be a little confusing for the dog, but you want to be in that small training bubble. That's another one of those concepts we've talked about is when you start training anything, you need to be really close to the dog. So bringing her out of a stay to a come, I might have only been literally a foot or two away from her. And all I'm trying to get her to do is move toward me enough that I can reward her with a treat. We might even be within arm's reach. So if I can just get her to stand up and take a step toward me, I can reward her with a yes and treat and all of that. And she catches on that I have treats that I'm going to give her when she comes out of a stay. And we can expand that training bubble to where I can be across the room and call her or in another room of the house and then call her. You can see how, just like with all of our other skills, we're starting to add those variables. And then we get outside. Now, outside is a completely different situation because she's technically not contained. Now, if you do happen to have a fenced backyard, use that as one of your progressive steps where it's still an area that's more familiar to the dog and they're contained within that fence of the backyard. I don't have that, so we have some alternatives. And even if you have a fenced backyard, maybe you think about getting one of these longer training leads. It's not a leash. Don't use it as a leash because that's going to teach the dog to walk too far away from you when they're on leash. This is a training lead, so you can get them in different lengths. And if, depending on the size of your yard, that may determine how long of a training lead you get. But I would recommend something that's, I'm going to say, at least 20 feet, and mine are 50. So basically all that this is is a piece of one-inch webbing with a clip at the end that I can clip onto dog's collar, just just like a leash, but... It's 50 feet of one inch webbing. And that's basically just going to trail around on the ground. And all it's really doing is it's providing me the ability, if I need to, to kind of reel the dog in. I'm not yanking on it or anything like that. It's basically just allowing me to control how far the dog can get from me. And when you progress to the point of training your dog like at the park, like even if you have that fenced backyard, Consider getting one of these long training leads when you first take your dog to the park. And it it allows you to be off-leash, quote, off-leash, because it's just trailing on the ground. 
but still gives you that level of control for training purposes and for purposes of the safety of the dog. So highly recommend these long training leads. Anyway, if she's on one of these leads, I can control, like, kind of control the zone that she can be in. So if there's a distraction a long ways away, she physically cannot get there because because I have this this restraint where I can reel her back in. And we we also need to realize that that even that training lead is a variable that we're adding. So don't train your dog to the point where they're only going to comply when they're on the training lead. Use that as one of those progressive steps toward having that solid recall for your dog. Now, once your puppies get to a certain point, and ours are well beyond this point now, they will be able to run faster than you. So in in a big open space, there is physically no way that I could actually catch Aura. She is way too fast for that. And if she does not want to be caught, there is no way that I'm going to catch her. So what I have to train her to do is to come to me on command. Now, typically a dog that's maybe a little resistant to coming when called, usually there's a reason for that. Usually they're they're thinking ahead a little bit that, okay, you said to come, I know what that means, but if I do, what's going to happen? You're going to put me on a leash if I do. And some dogs that are maybe just excited to be out and exploring, they just don't want to be put on a leash or drug back to the car or whatever. So don't train the dog, if you have, especially if you have a dog like that. If you do that, you're providing that negative feedback for their positive behavior. So realize what the dog wants, which is attention from you, treats from you, and maybe the freedom to run and explore a little bit. Provide that when the dog gives you that that behavior that you're looking for. Don't provide the thing that the dog is dreading when they do what you want it because you're just going to reinforce not coming when called, which is very counterproductive. So let's say that you're at the park, you have your dog on this long 50-foot training lead and the dog's sniffing around, sniffing some trees, exploring, sticking their nose in the grass, looking around at everything that's going on. You're paying attention to the environment to anticipate distractions and and hazards for that matter, and you're paying attention to your dog, your dog's body language. So you've got the situation under control, but the dog's distracted with some stuff, which is really a big part of training recall is ignoring a distraction. So some of these others also help these other commands like leave it can be like ignoring something that the dog wants that that wait command can be ignoring something that the dog wants. So, so getting in the habit of ignoring distractions in all sorts of different environments is very helpful, but we're specifically talking about the recall. So what you're actually asking your dog to do is a couple things. First of all, ignore whatever has their attention right now and then come to you. So if you've slowly progressed through this, like don't expect to train your dog just in that default distraction-free environment. You can't train come there and then go to the park and have them out at the end of a 50 foot training lead and say, come and expect them to do anything. And it's not because they're being bad. You've just changed way too many variables all at once. And the dog does not understand. So back to our scenario where your dog's exploring, having fun at the park, you're relaxed. You tell your dog to come 
and you get that compliance and your dog comes because your dog knows that you have some awesome treats, okay? This is the point where you give your dog extra big treats, lots of them, act all excited, rub them down, whatever you do, do not restrain them at this point. Do not put that leash on them. Don't grab their collar. That's the worst thing you could possibly do. Give them the treat, give them some pets, and then immediately let them go play again. Because we want the the entire feedback from you on their good behavior. You want all of that feedback to be positive feedback in the dog's mind. Where if they're apprehensive of coming because they think you might put them on a leash, don't put them on a leash. Now that's not to say that you are never going to put your dog on a leash when they come when called. But this is the difference between training the behavior and executing the behavior when needed. Like if you really need need your dog to come to you for like safety reasons or something, you say come, you need them to execute that command, and then you put them on a leash, that's totally fine. But when we're in training mode, we we don't we don't do that and we make sure that all of our feedback is positive because in training mode, we don't we don't need that behavior. And in fact, that's another kind of one of those small steps that you can make is again, in training mode, set the situation up where once you have your dog pretty solid at that recall, then recall your dog, clip the leash on, and then immediately unclip it and let your dog go play again. And that's letting your dog know, okay, this is a good behavior. I get good feedback for this. I'm not consistently getting that that negative reinforcement of every time I come back to you, I get put on my leash. But maybe sometimes I get put on the leash. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes you clip it on and take it off right away. Sometimes we go home. Sometimes we stay here. But regardless of what the end outcome is, I'm always getting that positive reinforcement. All right. One final good manners skill that we're going to teach is a give command. Now, this is when the dog has something in their mouth and you say give, you you want them to just basically drop it, especially if you have your hand on it and you say give, and the dog lets go and backs off. So how do we train that? Well, surprisingly, and actually maybe I should back up, traditional training method, how how was I taught to do this before in a traditional training class? Well, basically what they said is grab your dog's face and if you squeeze hard enough between their upper and lower jaw, they'll let go. And oftentimes that's how the give command is taught in traditional dog training classes. And I think you can see by now why that might be a bad idea. First of all, it it's unpleasant for the dog because you're inflicting pain on the dog until they let go. It's probably unpleasant for you to inflict pain on your dog and you've added that variable of squeezing their face where I don't want to have to squeeze my dog's face every time to get them to give where I say give and squeeze your face and you give it to me. I just want to say give and you give it to me. So how do we train this? Or maybe first of all, why is the quote bad behavior a natural dog behavior? Well, why would a dog naturally give up something that it has? Like it's picked something up, whether that's something it wants to play with, something it wants to chew on, something it wants to eat. It's picked that up for a reason because it wants that thing. The dog naturally knows that if it gives that thing up, it may not get it back. So give is not a natural dog behavior at all. Clamping down on something and keeping it 
That's the natural dog behavior. Okay, so we've identified why the bad behavior is natural and how we are asking the dog to do something very unnatural. So how do we train that? Surprisingly, I've found that the best way to train give is actually starting by playing tug. Because playing tug is a very natural dog behavior. So I personally like the the big, thick, long-ish ropes, uh, especially if you have dogs with strong jaws. And it just makes it easier to not get bit. As the dogs mature, they'll they'll improve in their aim with their teeth. But we're asking them to clamp down on something to play this game of tug without getting our hand in there too. So so I like to have a little longer rope for this. And all we this is a pretty natural dog behavior, so it's not something that you really have to train. If you're acting all fun and engaging for your dog and you have this rope and you shake it around a little bit, chances are the dog is going to get excited and clamp onto it too. And then provide them when they do that, even though playing tug is a natural dog behavior, when they do that, provide that positive reinforcement, give them that yes and rub their head while they're pulling on the rope. And then we're going to pull it around and depending on the size and age of your dog, be careful about how hard you yank around. You don't want to injure your dog. Ours are getting to the point now where they're big and strong enough that like they, you don't really have to worry about it. Like most people are probably not strong enough to play tug strongly enough with our dogs now to, to actually injure them, but be careful. So you don't injure your dog. If you have a small dog or a really young puppy, just play gently with them at first and you'll, you'll get a feel for for how hard they want to play tug. And you can kind of mirror that. That's probably a good rule of thumb is to mirror how hard they're playing. So the key here, what you're really trying to do is make this just fun and engaging for the dog. And it ends up being a great way to burn off some energy too for that exercise. Speaking of natural dog behavior, there's a little fox right outside the window. He's coming over to see if there's any water in the, in the water trough, which there is. Anyway, he's really cute. Very fluffy tail. Um, Where were we? Playing tug. So make this fun, make it engaging, and occasionally let your dog have the, the rope. And this is kind of another thing that's counter to traditional dog training that was all about like hierarchy and dominance. And they're like, oh, whoever whoever wins the game of tug of war is dominant in the pack. And so you have to make sure that every game of tug of war you win. Well, that's, that's just untrue. So forget that if you've heard it before. So occasionally let your dog have the thing and let them, they're going to shake it and then maybe bring it back to you. Or maybe they won't, maybe they want to run around with it for a while. Maybe they kind of prance around with it. Aura definitely does this. If she gets something that Maybe there's a little twinge in her little mind of, I'm not really supposed to have this, whether it's because she just won a game of tug of war, or maybe it's something that she's actually not supposed to have. She will literally like prance around the house with it, like showing it off. It's really funny. Anyway, occasionally let your dog win and make it fun for them so that they know this is a fun game that we do. This is a thing that we do. Like you pick up that rope, they know the routine. After you've made sure that this game is very fun for your dog, what you're going to do is 
in the midst of playing tug, you're basically just going to freeze and stop moving. Because the satisfaction that the dog is getting from playing tug with you is the motion and you like pulling back in different directions. So all you're going to do is literally stop and stand as still as you can. The dog's basically going to lose interest. Or the dog, maybe not lose interest, the dog is going to try to figure out what they need to do to re-engage in that game of tug. And some dogs are going to figure this out really quick, like literally within seconds. And some dogs, it may take several minutes and several sessions. But in general, it goes pretty quick. And like I said, some dogs literally figure it out within seconds and they back off and drop the rope. And at that point, you say, give, yes, good. And then you immediately re-engage in your game of tug. But one of our principles before, if you recall, was behavior, then command, not command, then behavior. The command, then behavior is the quote, traditional method where I say sit, and then I shove you down to the ground and I reinforce that sit. Uh, That doesn't work. So, or maybe it works, but it's just not as effective as waiting for the dog to exhibit the behavior and then telling them what they just did. So by I've created this situation where the dog is naturally eventually going to drop the rope. So that's the behavior and then the command give. Cause what I'm doing is I'm reinforcing and building the idea in the dog's mind of associating the word give with that behavior. And then eventually you do switch it around so that in the midst of the game of tug, as soon as you stop and say give, the dog just drops it immediately because they know that that's the routine. So as you're teaching this, again, don't don't take the rope away and end the game of tug on a give because what you're doing there, it's kind of like dragging your dog back to the car on the leash after they comply with your recall You don't want to provide a negative feedback of ending the game because they complied with give. Because all that that's going to teach them to do is to not give. Because when they did that, you provided negative reinforcement. And if you've experienced that, realize it's not your dog misbehaving. It's literally you providing negative feedback on their positive behavior. So if you provide negative feedback on your dog's positive behavior you're actually training them to do the opposite thing. Now, next step for this game, and and the give command for that matter, the next step, once your dog has this down, where you can go through several cycles of like the tug and the give, and you go right back and give it to them, and maybe they even occasionally bring you the rope to initiate the game of tug, and that's great if they're doing that. That's really good if your dog does that. So the next step is do do the give command. Your dog gives it. And then what you're going to do is you're instead of giving it immediately back to them, maybe you drop it on the ground. And different dogs are going to require different levels of you know how small you have to make these steps. Maybe just drop it on the ground. Maybe they pick it up. Maybe they don't. If they pick it up, then you want to immediately pick it up also and go back into your game of tug. Okay, the next thing to do is going to be to toss it a little ways away from, oh, and I should say, if they don't pick it up, you can pick it up and re-engage with them, okay? Now, 
The next thing to do is to toss it maybe a foot or two away and then three or four feet away and then maybe like across the yard and the dog is going to go get it and hopefully bring it back to you. Now, this may take some experimentation to to really communicate with, with the dog, but if you go in small enough steps, and I can't tell you every step that you would need to engage in for each individual dog and how quickly they're going to catch on to it, but I think you're probably getting the idea and the concept of how to teach this. At that point, you've taught your dog fetch. Now, when they bring it back, don't expect them to immediately give it to you. Go ahead and just re-engage in tug. Now, this may seem counterintuitive because you may think, oh, when my dog brings something to me, like I want the perfectly behaved, polite dog that brings me the rope and lays it at my feet. Well, you'll eventually get there, but what you want to do is as soon as the dog has that that small amount of compliance, like they get one step, which is bring it back to you, reward that, not by taking it away, but by immediately re-engaging in tug. Now, this is actually going to pr- progress pretty quickly because once the dog gets that routine down, because the dog has to give it to you for you to throw it, and the dog is going to catch on that that's fun to chase it and bring it back to you also. Now, once the dog has that part down, then you can add in the variable of occasionally also asking the dog to give it to you as soon as they bring it back. So so you're playing tug, you say give, the dog gives, you throw it, the dog runs after it, grabs it, brings it back, you put your hand on it, and you say give. Now, don't do that every single time, though. Just start throwing that in occasionally. Because if you do it every time, the dog's going to perceive that as negative feedback from you. Now, if you just do it occasionally and the dog complies and you immediately reward that with positive feedback, then the dog kind of generalizes this whole process into a routine and and the whole thing has a positive outcome. But you're not going to get there right from the start. You have to go through these small steps. And then eventually you will get to the point where, and I say eventually, but most of this goes surprisingly quickly, like in a matter of a couple training sessions, you can get there. So eventually you will get to the point where the overall routine is you play tug, the dog gives you the thing, you throw it, the dog retrieves it, brings it back, and and just immediately drops it because they, they're like skipping ahead to the next step where maybe you don't you don't even have to put your hand on it and say give, the dog just brings it back and and drops it right at your feet to get ready for the next throw. And eventually you can even phase out the tug aspect, or I shouldn't say phase it out because tug is still a really fun game for dogs and a good thing to use. So um, I should say eventually you can divide this into two different distinct games. You have one game of tug and one game of fetch, where if we're engaged in fetch, Maybe it's just throw, retrieve, drop, throw, retrieve, drop, and the dog thinks that that that's fun, but you're not going to be able to just immediately jump into that game of fetch without building these fundamentals first. Now, I should reiterate, don't, I would encourage you to not ever completely phase tug out because playing tug can be a great reinforcement for that give command because you never know when your dog is going to pick something up that for Maybe it's a kitten. And for some reason, you want to have a really solid give command that doesn't involve throwing or playing tug with the kitten. 
So eventually get to the point where you can just have a give command for for any instance. And the dog has generalized give to mean whatever's in my mouth right now, I give it to you. So I'm hoping that some of this information is going to help you with training your dog to have good manners for some of these specific skills. And just to kind of recap, whatever the behavior problem, the the good manners etiquette problem is that you're dealing with with your dog, still apply these general concepts of identifying why the dog is exhibiting that behavior and kind of a default mindset of this is probably a natural dog behavior. How do I explain this as a natural dog behavior so that I can address it from the perspective of asking the dog to do something that's not a natural behavior? And then at that point, how do I start with something that's an easy controlled environment with one concept that the dog can understand and then add more of those variables, add more of those distractions, change the environment until we get to the point where this dog is exhibiting polite behavior no matter where and when we happen to be. Now, if you're still having trouble with a specific dog behavior and you need some help with that, again, I would encourage you to get both of Zach George's books. First, Zach George's Dog Training Revolution. As a reminder, that's the general training program. That's going to outline the entire program for you. And then Zach George's Guide to a Well-Behaved Dog. That's going to be your troubleshooting guide for specific bad behaviors that your dog is exhibiting. And that is all I have for this week. So until next time, get outside, play some fetch, and pursue your mastercraft. Bye. Theme music for the Master of None podcast is Club Seamus by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Creativecommons.org. If you need some of your own original music, go check out Kevin's other work at his website, Incompetech.com. Incompetech.com.